Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. so excited that my guest today is Bo Burlingham. Bo is the author of Small Giants, Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big, and several other wonderful books. He's the former executive editor of Inc. Magazine, currently writes for Forbes Magazine, and almost single-handedly chooses every year the top 25 Forbes Small Giants. Over 10 years ago, Bo and I founded the Small Giants community. It's hard to believe it's been that long. And I think about the podcast here, Bo, I've probably interviewed, I don't know, 75 entrepreneurs. And there's one thing we all have in common. We were inspired and have continually been inspired by your storytelling and your impact on uh, business leaders and how they do business across the world. So um, welcome. It's great to have you. Well, I'm very flattered, Paul. I mean, I regard you in particular and uh, a lot of the other people you've interviewed is really my teachers who've sort of the people who've made my life interesting and I've been very fortunate in that way. Well, you're the first person that I've interviewed that doesn't actually own a business. And, right. and, and so you talked about how this has impacted your life and we're going to get into that. I want to tell the story quickly about how we met because uh, you were so gracious to me as you have been with so many other people. And, and I think that there's a lesson there about what it means to just reach out to people and ask for assistance, ask for help, learn. Uh, and that was the case with you. I remember it was back in 2007 and I had just written the manuscript for my first book, Why Is Everyone Smiling? And I come across this book called Small Giants. I read this book and I said, oh my gosh, I aspire to be like these companies, these 14 business leaders that you wrote in your book about. I uh, was so motivated by it. I, I said, that's what I, I want to be. And uh, having just finished my book was primarily about my story and, and my passion for culture and business. I write you a, an email. I said, Bo, you don't know me, but I just finished writing this book. Would you consider writing a foreword for my book? And you wrote back and you said, yes, I was shocked. You said, well, let me know when you need it. I said, I'm not in a rush uh, anytime in the next few months. And I'll never forget, I was, it was winter. I was on a ski weekend with my dad and my brother. We had come off the slopes for lunch, open up my phone, and there's an email from you with this forward for my book. And it almost brought me to tears, just the, what you had written. I was so touched by your willingness to do it. And that really began uh, a very long relationship that's lasted ever since that uh, resulted in the formation of the Small Giants community. Because for two years, I think, I was bugging you about this idea that there were many other leaders like me who had read your book, who were inspired by it. And as I thought about business and the kind of people I wanted to hang out with, I wanted to meet other people who felt this way, that business was more about just how big we could get, how fast we could get there, but about leading a certain way with purpose and values, trying to make the world a better place, 
having intimate workplaces where we cared about people in the totality of their lives. And if I was going to meet other people in business, I wanted to meet those kind of people. And they're hard to find sometimes, but you managed to find all them. Uh, and after these couple of years, I remember we were in Dallas one time sharing a bottle of wine and I'm bugging you again about this idea of maybe putting together a community. And I think you said something like, Paul, look, I'm a writer, not a business person, but if you want to do it, I'll support you any way I can. And you've done exactly that. And we've had this beautiful community that we've created and, and hopefully impacted some entrepreneurs over time. Well, I, I, certainly, I certainly hope so. I mean, really, my hat is off to you and to uh, Hemza and her team in Detroit, who've really done the work of creating the community. And uh, I have to say, whenever I get together with those people, even if I don't know them personally, they are a wonderful group of people. I should also say, Paul, that had I known about Beryl, uh, your company, before I wrote Small Giants, you would have been in it. So uh, your company would have been in it, too, because of the way that you were, uh, you'd built it and that you wrote about and why is everybody smiling? Well, that's very nice. And I think it's safe to say there's a lot of companies that had you known about them could have been in the book and, and we still uncover them. We like to say that these kind of companies don't always make the news, but they're really the ones making a difference. And, and you did a lot of that hard work to uncover them. And you're still doing that um, at this point in your career. But you weren't always doing this. You weren't always writing. You had a really interesting background, <laughs> even, even childhood. You were a bit of a uh, rebel slash radical, you know, talk a little bit about how and where you grew up and uh, where this sense of curiosity came from. Well, I, I, I can't explain where the curiosity comes from because that's probably above my pay grade. But uh, I grew up uh, outside New York City in a place called Rockland County. You know, I was there and, and you know, then I went to uh, college in New Jersey, I entered college in uh, 1964, and you know this was the era of the uh, of the war in Vietnam and also the civil rights era, and I was uh, very sort of caught up in opposing the war in Vietnam and in supporting the civil rights effort of Dr. Martin Luther King and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and and others. And um, I became involved with an organization called the Students for Democratic Society, SDS, which was an organization that, that was sort of openly radical. And they described themselves as radical, meaning that they radical, they go to the root of the problems and that they were looking at the root of the problems. And I was the right age and in the right place to get sort of swept up in that. And uh, I frankly became very, very involved with them for the next few years. And I was, you know, I have to say back then, I considered myself a Marxist. I mean, I look at some of the kids today, and uh, I can understand where they're coming from. Not that I agree with them, but, you know, I'd been there myself. And uh, because I think we all have this urge to try and make the world a better place. And I think that's where it was coming from 
in my case. And since the world was really screwed up back then, or seemed to be really screwed up back then, you know, I got very, very involved in that. And at that point, I think I really uh, was about as anti-business as you can get. I mean, I really thought that business was where all the problems of society were started. And I actually got involved with a group that some of your listeners may have uh, heard of called the Weathermen. It's still in the news. There was a period when the Weathermen were just sort of a faction of the Students for Democratic Society. And I got involved with them there. And uh, subsequently, the organization went underground and became very violent. I was not part of that, although I think the FBI thought I was. And, uh, you know, I look back on it and I think the best thing that ever happened to me from being in the Weathermen was that one of the things we were supposed to do was smash monogamy so that we, um, you know, in other words, that monogamy was something that was going to hold us back from being revolutionaries. And uh, I met a woman there named Lisa Mizell, and we just celebrated in August our 50th wedding anniversary. So we weren't really successful at smashing monogamy, but we did (laughs) develop a great, a great relationship. And, you know, subsequently, I actually, I, I think that for whatever reason, the government thought I was uh, more important than I actually was. I was not, I was really pretty much a a foot soldier in that organization, but the government wound up indicting me and I was under indictment for several years because there were a lot of legal things going on. Uh, The other thing that was happening was that Watergate happened and there were some sort of funny things that happened in connection that came out that uh, about what the FBI was doing leading up to the Watergate episode. And the government didn't want to reveal them. And our judge, the judge who was, uh, you know, in charge of our case, federal judge, said, uh, no, no, if you got information about any of these uh, defendants, by whatever means, you have to share that with them. And the government really, at that point, was really trying to, frankly, cover up what had happened prior to the Watergate episode. And, uh, I mean, the attempt to break in in the Watergate, or I should say the attempt to bug the Watergate, the office, the Democratic office in the Watergate Hotel, um, Finally, the government said, well, we we can't reveal this information for national security reasons. So they dropped the case. So suddenly, I, I mean, I was preparing really to go to trial and suddenly it was gone. But I was still a pretty radical guy, although by then Lisa and I had married and we had our son, Jacob, I suppose, Becoming a parent really does sort of change your perspective on things, particularly when you realize that you are responsible for someone 
an infant, a child who really can't look out for himself or herself. And that's a very sobering experience for anybody. And it certainly had a sobering effect on me as well. But it didn't really change my politics a whole lot, at least not at that point. But, you know, I had I had to earn a living. I had mouths to feed. Mm-hmm. And I initially, I had gotten into writing. I was writing for alternative newspapers in the Boston area. You know, and then I was uh, hired to go be a managing editor at Ramparts magazine, which was a well-known radical magazine based in Berkeley, California. And uh, I was there for about a year. And so that was the way that I was supporting the family. That was the way I was bringing an income in. It was, frankly, the only way I knew how to bring in an income. So even after this indictment was dropped... That's what I was continuing to do. But, you know, the thing about writing, particularly if you're going to do it for a living and you don't have a regular job, I was basically freelance. I mean, it's all sort of feast or famine, mainly famine. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I would get assignments to write for various publications. I was writing for Esquire magazine for a while and they paid pretty well but I but I was I was a very very slow writer <laughs> and it wasn't really something you know and, th- and then uh Lisa and I had another child and I realized I had to get a real job I had to get a job that was going to bring in a regular income and right about that time I received a call from a headhunter. Someone who knew I was looking for work had recommended that she call me. And she said that she'd been hired by Fidelity Investments to hire a writer uh, for them. They needed a writer to um, help them in their corporate communications department. And I said, well, gee, they definitely don't want me I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond. And uh, she said, well, no, that's not important. Uh, They'll teach you all about stocks and bonds if you want to learn. The important thing is that they need somebody who knows how to write. So I agreed to go in and be interviewed for this job. And I was interviewed and Fidelity decided to hire me. And um, I went to work there. Now, understand, I was still a pretty left-wing guy. And the idea of going to work for a financial services company was really talk about sort of going into the belly of the beast. That was sort of the way that I looked at it. And uh, in fact, when I actually started to work inside Fidelity, I realized that a lot of the things that I had believed about business and about companies and about the people who worked in financial services were just wrong. I mean, these were really, some of them really very wonderful people. They had the same aspirations and interests in doing good in the world that I had. And uh, that was really a, a very 
had a very big impact on me because it made me realize that I really had to question some of the things that I had come to believe when I was younger, not based on any particular information, but just on, you know, what I thought, you know, and what people, the people around me believed, the people in the quote unquote, in the movement, as we called it, some of these things were wrong. Um, and so that was the beginning of a very important learning experience for me. And uh, I was at Fidelity for a year. And again, I learned a tremendous amount. I learned a tremendous amount about the financial services industry. I mean, I was writing speeches for some of the executives, so I had to learn fast. And I was also writing up programs about things like cash management. Well, believe me, before I went to Fidelity, I had no idea what cash management was or why anybody would even be interested in it. But I learned, and uh, I began to understand more about business. Well, after I'd been there uh, for about a year, I got a call from a friend of mine who had been an editor at Boston Magazine and uh, where I had written some articles. And he had um, been hired by a startup in Boston called Inc. Magazine. And he said that the magazine was looking for people who had done sort of general interest magazine writing, which I had, um, but who knew something about business. Well, you know, to the extent that I'd been at Fidelity for, for a year, I knew something about business. It w wasn't very much, but it, it was something. And so I agreed to go. And, and you know, I have to say, I, I did face a choice. It, I did, I well, let me just say that I, I did agree to go and do an interview with uh, people at Inc. Magazine, and they wound up offering me a job. And I had a choice at that point. One was, I mean, I could have stayed at Fidelity, and I probably would have wound up going into the marketing department and uh, making a lot more money. But I really felt that my identity was sort of tied up in in magazines and in writing for articles. I hadn't started any books at that point. And I decided, no, I, I think I'm really better off going and taking this job at Inc. Magazine. Now, understand at that point, Inc. Magazine was, this was in, you know, the beginning of 1983, and Inc. Magazine had been founded in 1979, so it wasn't even four years old. I started in January. Its fourth birthday was in April. And the things that Inc. is famous for today, like the Inc., well, now it's called the Inc. 5000. Uh, back then, it started out as the Inc. 500, which was the 500 fastest growing privately held companies in America. And we were just, we had just published the first list of these fast growing companies. And, 
Inc. was doing it on an annual basis. And the names, if you go back and look at the list, the names are a lot of companies that are, you know, household names today, like you know, Microsoft, for example, Oracle was another one, Patagonia, Domino's Pizza. All of these companies were just small startups, and uh, they were on our list of fast-growing private companies back in the early days. And uh, so that's where I wound up in 1983, and that was really an eye-opening experience for me because I was meeting entrepreneurs. I mean, I hardly knew what an entrepreneur was. Uh, when I went to work there, but I, I found out and I began to, one thing that I was really sort of shocking to me considering my background was that the number of these entrepreneurs were actually, they're, they're very idealistic people who were, uh, you know, building companies that were like little societies in which the rules were basically the rules of how that little society operated were really the sort of rules that you would aspire to in general um, in terms of the way. I remember there was one person we interviewed who said, well, you know, it's true that out in the world there's lying and there's cheating and there's all kinds of bad stuff that goes on. But it doesn't have to go on in this company. We don't operate that way. And in fact, these were companies that had very high goals and purpose. You know, as, as we say now, they had purpose and they had values, although I didn't have that kind of language to talk about it. But as I got to know a lot of these companies and I, I got to know about entrepreneurs in general, it really forced me to go back and, and, and realize that lots of things that I had believed before were simply wrong. It, you know, that what I thought about how businesses operated, how did businesses, you know, make money, for example, the ideas that I had were just wrong. They were based on, on beliefs that really didn't describe what was really happening inside a company. I mean, one of the ones, for example, is that you'll find lots of leftists, uh, even today, who buy into what was known among Marxists as the labor theory of value, which is that all value is created by employees and, and by the work that's done in them. Now, obviously, that constitutes a very important part of any value that is created, but it's not the only thing. It takes to start a business, to identify an audience and so forth, it takes imagination. Um, it takes success in operating, you know, different parts of and coordinating the way people work together. I mean, you know, I hardly have to explain to, I'm sure to your audience, Paul, the complexities of running a business, which I simply had been naive about and wrong about. And 
so it, it became impossible for me not to um, really go back and and challenge. I mean, there were a lot of things that happened that just challenged what I had uh, grown up believing. I mean, my values didn't change. I still believe that uh, the kind of world where people treated each other in a certain way and organizations played a role in society, a certain role in society or should play a certain role in society, you know, I, those ideas of mine didn't change at all. But my understanding of the way to do it and of, of how organizations could achieve change and really sort of lay the groundwork and create a society which was better than what we had. And I began to see that businesses, in fact, were capable of doing that and capable of having that impact. And that really sort of led up to the work that I started to do. I mean, at a certain point, started actually with the great game of business and Jack Stack, um, you, who you've interviewed, Paul. In fact, you've done a couple of really great interviews with Jack, some of the best I've heard, and believe me, I've heard a lot of them. And there's a long story about how I first met Jack, but the result was that I eventually wound up I was the executive editor of uh, Inc. Magazine at that time, and uh, I decided to resign that position and become what we call the editor-at-large because I wanted to write books. I wanted to be able to explore some of these ideas and companies, frankly, that we'd been writing about that I admired. And I wanted to really sort of get inside them and see what was going on. And the first one was really Springfield Remanufacturing, what was then called Springfield Remanufacturing Corp in Springfield, Missouri, that had started doing something that I'd never heard of before and could scarcely imagine. And that was teaching all of its employees how the business made money and generated cash using financial statements and so forth. So, and that, you know, led to uh, Jack and I writing The Great Game of Business, which was uh, our first book. And then subsequently we wrote another book together called A Stake in the Outcome, which was about building an ownership culture in a company. And then after that, I went on to do Small Giants, and, and other books. Let's take a quick break. As a leader, I value responsiveness. In fact, it's one of the values of the Small Giants community. When it comes to email, crowded and disorganized inboxes can get in the way of being responsive to the people who matter most. I was so happy to learn that the team at Basecamp, a 2017 Forbes Small Giants Award winner, has transformed email with their new product called Hey. Hey gives you back control of your inbox with features you never knew you needed, but you won't want to live without. The first time you receive an email from someone, you get to decide exactly what to do with it. You can add it to your inbox full of all the important stuff, your feed for casual reads, 
or your paper trail for receipts and other transactions. Or you can decide not to receive emails from that person. There's a handy reply later feature so you never miss getting back to someone, even if you can't tackle it right that second. Hey also makes it easy to edit email thread subject lines into something helpful so you don't have to sift through long message threads that have evolved light years away from the original subject. Hey blocks spyware, makes attachments easy to find, and lets you send large files. Visit hey.com now to start a 14-day trial. That's H-E-Y.com for a 14-day free trial. And now back to the podcast. I would like to ask a little bit more about Small Giants. I know that uh, you had written this, this article about Zingerman's Deli as the best little small company in America or something. I don't yeah. think I have the title right. You know, your editors asked you, uh, thought or portfolio thought that there might be a book there. And so you uncovered these other uh, companies. You wrote about 14 different companies. Uh, these weren't the Microsofts or the or Apple or the Oracles of the world anymore. These were small companies. Maybe there's a few of them that we, we'd heard of. But, but talk about some of the just common things that you found of these uh, special companies that you uncovered and talked about in Small Giants. Well, that, that, uh, sure. Um, what happened with Small Giants was that it really, as you, as you mentioned, it started with an article that I wrote for Inc. Magazine called The Coolest Small Company in America, which was about Zingerman's community of businesses. And Zingerman's had a very interesting story, which I really became aware of when I went to visit them. I had heard about Zingerman's and what they were doing in their delicatessen, which had become sort of famous. It was, they were in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, they had this delicatessen, which was being written up all over the place as one of the great delicatessens in the world. And uh, I convinced my editor and friend, uh, George Gendron, there was probably an article for Inc. there and that I should go and check it out. And uh, he agreed. Uh, so I went out to Ann Arbor. And what I was really struck by, I mean, I should give a little background here since they were, since they started this whole thing. Zingerman's was a company that was started in 1982 by two guys, two young people who were working in restaurants in Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan. And they weren't high up in restaurants. They weren't like the owners of restaurants, but the two of them, you know, they were doing the kinds of work that you need to do to have a restaurant go, you know, from washing dishes to busing tables and so forth, and cooking. And these two guys, uh, Ari Weinzweig and Paul Saginaw, got to talking and they decided that, you know, in the course of their talking, they, they said, you know, you can't really get a good pastrami sandwich here. And uh, there's no real delicatessen, really good delicatessen here. And they agreed with that. And they thought, you know, maybe we should start a delicatessen. And in 1982, that's what they did. And they talked about what kind of a business they wanted it to be. They said, we want it to be a great place to work. 
and we wanted it to have absolutely outstanding customer service. You know, we want to create a company that is really great and unique and that, you know, had its own place in the world that was different from what any other delicatessen was doing. And so they started this delicatessen in 1982, and, and, and they were incredibly successful. And by 1992, um, they were famous. And they came to a crossroads, which I know now is actually a crossroads that a lot of companies come to. Namely, if you achieve what you originally set out to do, what do you do next? And they had lots of opportunities to do things. They could have franchised. They could have, a lot of people told them they were crazy not to become franchisors and set up Zingerman's delicatessens all over the country. It would seem like a natural. And, uh, you know, they could have also raised private equity and started their own Zingerman's delicatessens. Uh, uh, you know, there were just, there were a whole bunch of things that were sort of the standard way when you have a, successful, a real successful small business as they did, what are the opportunities to grow that business? And they realized that they thought about all of these and there were a lot of people telling them they were crazy if they didn't pursue these different opportunities. And they said, well, they just, you know, they didn't really want to do that, that they started the company because they wanted to create something that was great and unique. Well, when you start copying it, uh, it's no longer unique by definition, and um, lots of times it isn't even great anymore. The, basically, the copies that you create are, are sort of pale imitations to what you originally created. And so they decided, well, they did want to grow. They knew they had to keep doing things, otherwise they'd stagnate. And they talked it over, and eventually they came up with a plan, which was very unusual. Namely, they said, well, yes, we do want to grow, but our goals here are to provide great customer service for our customers and the best quality products we can, and to provide great opportunities for our employees and to you know, be a great citizen of our community. And um, we can do all those three things if we just stay in the Ann Arbor area and start other companies, start other food-related companies. Like we could have, a, in addition to a delicatessen, we could have a catering service. We could have a gift service. We could have a mail-order gift service. We could have a coffee company, we could make coffee, we could make a gelato and cheese, we could have a, a creamery, we could set up restaurants, and we could set up all of these different Zingerman's entities and stay in this area, which would mean that we would have a much bigger impact on the Ann Arbor community than we have now, and we'd be creating opportunities for our employees to go and do new things. Some of them might want to start one of these companies. And, and also, and, and, and we really wanted to provide the highest quality products to our customers with fantastic service. Well, we, we can do all of that 
in all these other entities. They, each of these ent uh, new entities can be great and unique in its own right. And so they had this idea, a vision of what they wanted to do. And in 2004, Ari and Paul wrote up this vision, and it was a vision of what, no, I, I, it was 1994. <laughs> Uh, they had this vision uh, of what they wanted the company to be like in 15 years, namely in 2009. And it would no longer be just Zingerman's Delicatessen. It would be Zingerman's community of businesses. And they were looking out. They described what this was going to look like 15 years in the future. Well, I went to see them in 2002, you know, which was roughly halfway toward their 15-year goal, and I was just blown away by what they'd done. I mean, they already had, they had started a bunch of these different businesses, and, and each of the businesses was great in its own right. They had a world-famous bakery, and they had a creamery that made fantastic gelato and cheese. They had a coffee company. They had a, a great restaurant. But I, I think the thing that really struck me the most was the people, the people who wanted to be part of this. I mean, you had people who, you know, who had had well-paying jobs in big accounting firms who had quit those jobs and taken a pay cut to come and be part of this experiment. There was one person who uh, had been in a national accounting firm, and she decided that she would prefer to come back to Ann Arbor and, you know, bake bread. So she became one of the founders of the bakery. Uh, there were entrepreneurs who had been very successful in electronics uh, who sold their companies in order to start a creamery. And so you had all of these extraordinary people who were really sort of caught up in this very exciting idea of creating a great company and the way that they described the company, you know, had to do with uh, all of the people who were associated with it, uh, their customers, their employees, their suppliers, their community, everybody. And um, I just thought this was fantastic. So I wrote an article for Inc. called The Coolest Small Company in America. And it was definitely the coolest company I'd ever seen. And uh, they got a big response from our readers. Our readers really loved the idea. And one of the people who bonded to it was actually a publisher in New York named Adrian Zackheim. It was a, actually a well-known publisher of books, business books in New York. And he had a, his own imprint, which was part of Penguin, called Portfolio Books. And uh, he called me up and said that he thought maybe there was a book there for me. And at first, I didn't get it. I, I mean, I thought, you know, gee, maybe Ari or Paul would want to write a book. But I, I didn't see how there was one for me. But I, I decided to go meet with him. And uh, it became clear that he was not talking about a book about Zingerman's. He said, uh, you know... This is a company that had the opportunity to get a lot bigger, a lot faster, but chose not to because they had other goals that they considered more important. And they wanted to be a great company rather than just be a big company. And 
he said, you know, the, the question is, are there other companies out there like this? And I'd been at Inc., you know, at that point for uh, or over 20 years, and I'd seen hundreds and hundreds of companies, and I didn't know what was the answer to his question. I mean, were there other companies out there that could have gotten a lot bigger, a lot faster, but chose not to because they had other goals. They had other uh, bigger goals that they wanted to achieve. But I thought it was I thought it was a, a very interesting question. So I went around and began asking people if they knew about these companies like this or did they um, sort of met this profile and had they thought of any companies that really just wanted to be great companies rather than get as big as possible, as fast as possible. And I, I did a lot of searching on my own, obviously, and uh, I began to sort of get a list and pretty soon became clear to me that there were a lot more of these companies out there than I had any idea. And because there were so many, I was able to, you know, choose 14 of them that I thought would give a pretty good picture of what this phenomenon was of companies that chose to be great instead of big. And so that that's really what, uh, that's where small giants came from. And, you know, the question I asked, there was something very exciting about all of these companies. I mean, people were, if you talk to their employees or you talk to their customers, or even if you talk to their suppliers, there was a certain kind of excitement in their voices about these places. And I didn't know what to call that. In the course of writing a book, one of the companies that I was writing about, Cliff Bar, Gary Erickson, who was the founder, told me a story that made me realize that really what this was, was Mojo. And, uh, and so I said, okay, well, I'm going to write about these companies that have this mojo. And the question I had was, where did it come from? And I began to look at what all these companies had in common and had to do really with the relationships that they endeavored to maximize with, you know, the, to strengthen with all the people they came in contact with, their people, their customers, their community, and so forth. And that's what small giants became. And it was interesting because this was a shocking idea at the time the book came out for a lot of people. I mean, there was one guy on the Inc. 500 who I talked to, I, not because he was a candidate for this, he wasn't, but I told him that I, I was writing this book and, and what the idea of it was. And he said that challenged everything that he'd ever thought about building a business. You know, you mean you would start a business and you wouldn't try to have it grow as much as possible and get as big as possible. And uh, it really sort of made him step back and, and think about it. And that's, you know, that's really what I wanted to do with the book was to challenge people to really ask a very, very important question, namely, what is it that makes a company great? And I realized that different people would have different answers to that question, but it seemed to me a question that every 
entrepreneur, every person who starts a business or buys a business or, you know, and is operating a business at some point needs to ask themselves, what exactly is a great business? And um, right around this time, uh, Jim Collins had come out with his extraordinarily wonderful book called Good to Great. And he had defined greatness in financial terms, not just financial terms, but he was dealing with public companies. And so when you deal with public companies, there's a whole realm of information that you have available to you and that you can measure the performance of a company by. And what I was looking at were all private companies, every single one of them, because that's what we wrote about at Inc. and that's what I was interested in. And the criteria that Jim Collins had used for good to great or for any of his other books, you know, I couldn't apply to a private company. And so I decided to look at what these 14 companies that were really in their particular niches uh, or their particular industries, they were the best. Even their competitors would tell you, I mean, if you, I mean, and I did, I did this. I mean, I was speaking to somebody in the picture framing industry. I don't know how I got in touch with her. She probably wrote to Inc. or something like that. And I was interviewing her and talking to her. And I said, well, is there one company in your industry that's really the best that everybody looks up to? And she said, oh, you've got to talk to Jay Goltz at the Goltz Group in uh, Chicago. His framing company is the one we all look at. And I would look at in choosing these companies, I, I wanted people like there was a, uh, I looked in New York, there are restaurants in New York that are part of the Union Square Hospitality Group, which was started by a young man named Danny Meyer. And in fact, his two first restaurants in New York were Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern were year after year in the Zagat guides determined to be the two most popular restaurants in the entire city of New York. And it was just, it was regular every year. And, and he had some other restaurants as well. And uh, he would get lots and lots of offers to start restaurants in all over the world. And in, you know, somebody would Las Vegas, he would, people would approach him, why don't you start a, a Union Square Cafe or Gramercy Tavern in Las Vegas or what about Los Angeles or wherever? And he would turn all these opportunities down and, and he actually developed a rule for himself, which is that he wouldn't start any restaurant uh, that he couldn't walk to in five minutes from his house. And, uh, I asked him, well, why? Why would you do that? These are great business opportunities, weren't they? And he said, he said, you know, think about art. He said, you know, he had what he called the Mona Lisa principle. And he said, whatever you know about art, the Mona Lisa, the painting, the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci, uh, which hangs in the Louvre in Paris, he said, the experience of viewing that painting 
if it were in a different museum in a different city, in a different country, the experience of going to see that painting would be totally different than it is when you have to go to Paris, to the Louvre, to see it. And uh, uh, he said, the same thing applies to my restaurants. The neighborhoods in which they're located are part of the identity of the restaurant. And that really sort of challenged my own thinking to um, really ask, with all of these companies, what was their relationship to the places where they did business? And what did they give to the communities and what did the communities do to shape them? And uh, so that was obviously an important part of the definition of what these companies with Mojo, some of their Mojo was, uh, was coming from where they were located. So in any event, I wound up going through and identifying really five or six important characteristics. One of them was that these people, when they decided to build their companies, these were all entrepreneurs who had a very clear idea of who they were, what they wanted, and why. Uh, because frankly, they, in many cases, were doing things that other people told them were crazy. You look at Ari and Paul at Zingerman's, people told them they were crazy not to take this opportunity to expand nationally. And, you know, that was true with a lot of these companies. And uh, I have various stories about this in Small Giants. And uh, so that was number one. Number two, you know, did have to do with this question of where they were located and what effect that had on them. The third one really had to do with their customers. They all sort of really strove to have these very close, intimate connections with their customers. Even if they had hundreds of thousands of customers, they went out of the way to make those relationships as personal as, as possible. And yet, the irony here was that the customers didn't come first. The customers came second. Why? Because the employees came first. And when you think about it, you know, who's having these relations with the customers after the company gets above a certain size, it's no longer, you know, the founder who's dealing with customers, it's employees. And if you really want to treat customers well and make sure that they have a wonderful experience with your company, it's important that those employees, you know, give them that experience. So that was the, the fourth one. And, you know, there was one that I missed in the original edition of Small Giants, although I, I could, and I didn't discover it until actually after that original book had been published. And it had to do with the financial side, which was I, I had said that I want one of the criteria was that I wanted companies that had been profitable for a long period of time. In other words, they'd gone through the ups and downs of business and had managed to remain profitable. But I realized that it was more complicated than that, thanks to the experience of some of the companies that I'd written about. And uh, I realized that there was a financial dimension to this. 
in particular that you know they needed to protect their gross margins they needed to be basically be making enough money to be able to afford all these other things that they wanted to do they also had to make sure that they adapted to the changing environment uh because if they didn't you know they could have a business model that became something that didn't work if the environment changed and uh the other thing was that they had to have a a balance sheet that was strong enough to ensure that the company always had and continued to have the cash it needed so that became another characteristic that i did write about and then the final one really had to do with the way that the thing that i noticed was what the founders of these companies what they thought about whatever it was that their companies did not not just that they loved their companies but they loved what it was that the companies were doing you know and they thought it was really important you know an example of that was uh well certainly Zingerman's who thought that the food they were providing their customers had to be really great or um you know anchor brewing was uh, an- another small giant and fritz maytag who had taken over and was running anchor brewing when it was a small giant you know he was just passionate about traditional ways of making beer you know norm brodsky who had a company called city storage which was a record storage business and you think about that you know how does anybody get really excited about record storage is just putting boxes on shelves and taking boxes off shelves not exactly sexy business but you talk to norm and he would say that he loved walking into his warehouses and smelling the cardboard and you know he had this incredible passion for building a great company of creating a great place to work for his employees doing great things for his customers being a great citizen of the community where the business was located and for having a great life and uh so in writing small giants this is what i wrote about and paul as you mentioned it and as as you reminded me repeatedly <laughs> uh there were a lot of people who read this and identified with it but you know how do you find them uh, how do you find these companies you know and paul really it was you who uh took the initiative to uh found the small giants community and to start it and uh, i i i certainly support what you've done every step of the way but it's really you who have sort of created this entity that allows companies that identify as small giants to uh meet each other and to learn from each other and i i salute you for that well well thank you uh it's an ongoing search but we do uncover them and we do uncover great stories uh you continue to tell these stories uh 
we're recording this when we're still in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. And I'm wondering what you've observed as you continue to talk to entrepreneurs and companies that are going through what they're going through now, and how this idea of purpose and values-driven business has survived uh, you know, 14 years or so after you wrote the book? Uh, do you see these concepts continuing, catching on, going away? How important do you think these findings are uh, to the really the business of the future? Well, I think that frankly they're more they're more relevant now than ever, and partly that's a generational thing. I mean, the entrepreneurs. I mean, obviously people start businesses for different reasons, but uh, and you know I'm out here. I'm in California and uh, Silicon Valley. There are a lot of people who come out to start businesses mainly because they want to get rich and they have this idea that they can get rich by starting a company. But I would say that they're really sort of the exception that most of the young people who are starting companies, they really want to have great companies and they want, in the sense, you know, I wrote about in the small giants and that we promote in the small giants community. And I will say this, looking at the pandemic specifically, you know, obviously it's been hard. It's been hard for all small companies or mid-sized companies. Uh, you know, the challenges have been great. But the one thing that I notice is that there's uh, the great game of business, which I wrote with Jack Stack, also gave rise to another community, which sort of overlaps a lot with small giants, and that is the great game of business community. And those are companies that basically, you know, run their businesses with the complete transparency of the numbers. In fact, they teach employees how to understand the financials of a business, and then they provide them with the information that you need in order to understand really how a business is doing. And uh, there's a subsidiary of Springfield Remanufacturing, or SRC Holdings, as it's now called, that promotes all of this. And it's called the Great Game of Business. And every year they hold a, a conference. It was virtual this year, and it was just actually a couple of weeks ago. And what they do is Every year, they select and announce all-stars, which are companies that are really sort of exceptional in sort of applying the uh, great game of business to their own companies. I mean, a lot of these are small giants, frankly. And I'm one of the judges that chooses the all-stars. And we had about, this year, about 25 or 30 companies. And the thing that was really striking about all of them was none of them had laid anybody off. Or I should say there was one company which happened to be a magazine which had laid off a couple of people, but everybody else had sort of gone through the pandemic and they never laid anybody off. You know, that's a hard thing to do. You know, when you're running out of cash, 
you got to, you know, if you, if you run out of cash and you can't pay your bills, then you're out of business. And sometimes in order to make sure you do have enough cash to pay your bills, you have to reduce your labor costs. And yet all of these companies had been able to sort of go through the pandemic to this point in any event without laying anybody off. And I suspect that the same is true of most of the uh, small giants in the community. I think you have to be very clever, you know, in this environment, particularly if you have, say, a, um, a restaurant, to figure out exactly how you're going to make enough money, uh, generate enough cash to be able to keep everybody employed. But the point is that if you have companies that follow these precepts and that really do work the way small giants do, you simply have a much stronger company. You have companies that are able to, um, you know, a weather a terrible economic period such as the one we're going through right now. Yeah, I think uh, I would agree. Just the companies that I've talked to have been incredibly resilient. I, I was, I just been shocked, but I think it goes back to these precepts, these concepts that you highlighted as small giants that people went to their values, went to their purpose or when they established goals for themselves to get through the pandemic, it's been, how do we protect our people, number one? And that's why you see such a, a low incidence of layoffs and things like that. And, you know, people are suffering through it, but they're innovating, they're taking advantage of opportunity. And the best part I've seen is that they're being inclusive of the strategies that they're using. They're not just coming up with survival techniques, they're listening to their own people and letting them come up with these these great ideas. And so I, I love the fact that these things that you've talked about have not only survived, but are thriving. I don't think necessarily uh, we're there yet in terms of this being the common way that business is done. Uh, but I think we're getting there. Like you said, it's generational. Young people today want to make a difference in the world, want to feel like they're impacting society. Uh, they want to be fulfilled in what they do. And it's not just about the money for them. So I have just great confidence and optimism about the future of the impact that business is going to make. And I'm so grateful for you to continuing to help uh, highlight and tell the stories of these people. Um, Bo, I want to end with these same five quick hit questions that I give to entrepreneurs that, that come on our program. Um, uh -huh. And so just kind of the association game, just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, <laughs> Who's, who's a, a leader? I know you have a long list, but just pick one leader that you look up to. Well, it's Jack Stack. It's, uh, I've learned so much from Jack Stack, and uh, he would be the leader that I look up to, um, the business leader, certainly, that I look up to. Yeah, I, I can't disagree. He's just incredible. Um, how about a great book that influenced you? Uh, as uh, you've gone along your journey, I know you've written plenty that have influenced others, but what's one that's influenced you? Well, it depends. If you're talking about a business book, um, I would say that the one that's influenced me the most recently is Clayton Christensen, The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I just recently actually uh, read it, and uh, it really is a book that forces you to go back and and really think through how it is that companies innovate and survive. Because one of the things that he shows is that often when you look at companies that have not sustained their innovation, it's often because they're doing all the right things. <laughs> and and that, seems, that seems like a contradiction. But it, it, it's, in fact, they're doing everything that we say companies should do and that we promote. And yet sometimes that can leave companies vulnerable. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I also have been reading a lot of history. Oh, there, there are a number of books. I, yeah. I would say that. Uh, yeah. That's a great one. Uh, what's your all-time favorite movie? My all-time favorite movie, I, believe it or not, I think it was Breaker Morant. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, do you have a favorite TV series to binge watch? Uh, I've got several right now, um, but uh, Yellowstone is the one that, uh, well, my wife and I watch TV together uh, in the evening. And uh, actually, there's another one. It's a French series called The Bureau. Either one of those, I'd be torn between the two of them, The Bureau and uh, Yellowstone. Yeah, I just heard about Yellowstone. I'll have to check that one out. Um, lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know? Well, uh, what's something about me that many people don't know? That's a hard one, Paul. <laughs> um, let me see. I like sweets. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, for better or worse. For, for better, better or worse. Or worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's both. It depends. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's great. Um, both. It, it's such a pleasure to to hear you and um, be reminded of uh, some of the stories, not only in your background. You know, you talked early on about not really understanding where your curiosity came from. But I think it's your curiosity that has driven you uh, all these years and your your openness to listen and understand and, and even adjust your own thinking about life and the impact that you can make. Uh, some of the things you, you mentioned, um, you know, up from your more radical younger days and uh, opposing the war in Vietnam, supporting the civil rights movement, you know, I'm not sure how much, honestly, we've really improved considering what's going on right now um, socially in this country. Uh, but you, you know, yes, you got involved in the weathermen and, and these organizations, but as you got exposed to life events, uh, you, you changed. And, and that's no different than, than all of us from yeah. becoming, becoming a parent um, and realizing that you had a responsibility to raise a family. Uh, being a writer and realizing at some point I got to get a real job and that real job ended up at Fidelity and you started to realize, hey, um, business isn't really what I thought it was. The, you know, These are people and companies that are making an impact as well. Uh, getting to Inc. Magazine, starting to write these stories, understanding more about 
these owners, these entrepreneurs who were idealistic in their own right, that had their own little societies that they felt could uh, help impact and change the world. And again, you started questioning yourself about what it meant to be in business and that business took imagination, coordination, systems in place. You knew you wanted to write books. Your first book with Jack obviously impacted you. And then the opportunity after writing about Zingerman's to, to write Small Giants and uh, and it hasn't stopped, right? You continue to, to write even about companies and owners that ended up selling or leaving their companies at some point with Finish Big. And just even now to see the what's going on in the world and uh, the impact that people can make. And so whether it's those of us that have uh, either chosen or fallen into business and made these choices, you've made your own choices in life based on what you've learned. And what I'm happy about and grateful for is that you continue to tell the stories of those companies and those leaders that are making a difference in the lives of the various stakeholders in their businesses. And I'm proud that during this really tough time in the world, that business leaders are making choices for themselves to look at the various stakeholders and prioritize those that are most important, whether it's their own families or their own employees. And that's getting people through these tough times. And so we will survive and thrive. And I'm very confident that the small giants way of doing business will become the majority way of doing business in the years to come. And we are grateful to you for your impact and continuing to tell, tell our story. So Bo, uh, thank you so much for for being on the podcast with me today. Well, thank you, Paul. And uh, I don't know if I deserve all that uh, <laughs> recognition, but I, I have to say I've had a very uplifting life. I've been very fortunate to be around people like you and the people who I wrote about in Small Giants. It does give you so much hope for the future. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Bo. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please support the show by subscribing to hear future episodes. Until next time. <laughs>